Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday to you. My name is Tim Harris. It's 10 o'clock. means it's time for Tim with Tim. Each day, Monday through Friday, we take about 10 minutes and we go verse by verse of the Word of God. Some of you are new with me, and I am so happy that you're with us. Uh, again, it's a little bit of a community. Uh, we love to uh, talk to each other in the comments. Uh, we're doing this together, and so that unites us. And so anyway, I love it. Gosh, to be uh, friends in the Word of God is, I think, probably the best kind of friends. So, so let's jump in. Isaiah chapter 14 today. As I said yesterday, we're in this section of Isaiah now that really just uh, are these oracles against the nations. God's pronouncing his judgment across uh, the enemy nations of, uh, of Judah. And so chapter 14, we're still really talking about Babylon. We, we started that conversation yesterday uh, but chapter 14 becomes very interesting. Uh, technically speaking, this is a, a, a taunt. In other words, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of mocking of the enemy once the enemy is defeated. You know, it's, you know, nana, nana, boo, boo kind of thing. I mean, seriously, you know, um, uh, once the enemy is deposed and humiliated, there's a bit of gloating here prophetically speaking. And that's what you find in chapter 14. Now, again, I remind you, this taunt is before, <laughs> not after. You know, So really what this is, is a kind of prophetic encouragement to persevere. Uh, this entire passage would have been something the people of God would have had 200 years before Babylon was doing its evil work. And so once Babylon begins to do what the prophecy uh, pronounces judgment for, then the people already know that God is going to answer it. You know, so it's it's an ultimate kind of encouragement and assurance that God is on the throne. Uh, primarily, uh, this passage is a, is a taunt against the king of Babylon. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, it begins, the chapter begins with a, a, a prose section. In other words, it's not poetry. It's just prose. And it's talking about how God will have mercy upon Israel. They're his special people. And, uh, and they'll, they'll all be uh, brought back. They'll come back with the blessing and favor of all the other nations. Uh, I'm a little troubled, just to be honest, and I'm not saying you know God's word owes me an explanation, but but Israel, having been you know former slaves, um, that they would you know take any pleasure out of you know bringing in other nations and and enslaving them, you know, which is kind of what verse two says. Mm, I'm just kind of like, yeah, did y'all think that through? <laughs> I mean, you know how that feels, right? You, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I think what it is, prophetically speaking, is not so much God's blessing there, giving it back to them the way it was given to them. I, I think it has more to do with, uh, remember yesterday we talked about that inversion, that great reversal? And this is a completion of that reversal where those who were the oppressed now are completely in the position of power. Um, but but again, I, I don't really believe that God's word blesses the enslavement of anybody, even your enemies. You know, I think Jesus said, love your enemies, right? So at any rate, like, like I say, this is a prophecy. I think it has more to do with that inversion. Uh, and, and it's more an encouragement to those who are slaves, you know, that one day you will be in the position of power. Um, from there, as I said, this promise that the, the mighty man, the king of Babylon, so to speak, is going to be destroyed. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's brutal and, and total in its assurance that he will get what's coming to him. But, but more than that, uh, if you'll notice that this passage keeps tilting over into this cosmic language. Verse 7, finally, the earth, the whole earth 
is at rest and quiet. The word there is Sabbath. You know, there's this idea that everything is returned to this state of peace and equilibrium and, and Sabbath rest that God has always intended. And it's because of the destruction of this evil one. Um, verse 9, 10, 11 talks about how, you know, he's going to show up in hell and, you know, all his old friends will be there. Mostly just glad to see him dead too. Uh, now you're as weak as we are, they all proclaim. These are all the people that he oppressed. Now he sees them in hell, and uh, they're just like, yeah, you know, welcome to the party. You know, it's uh, it's that sort of taunt. Uh, again, uh, you're, you're in hell now. The worms are your blanket, maggots are your sheep. Uh, sleep with the worms, you know. Um, it's, it's verses 12 to 17, really, that draw my attention, though, because, as I said, the passage keeps tilting over into this cosmic language, but when it gets to verse 12, all of this sudden, it shifts a great bit. Uh, scholars haven't always known what to do with this, but the, but the long tradition is at this point, the, the prophetic imagination, the prophetic inspiration begins to go from this king of Babylon, who is this, you know, very, you know, you know Hitler-like leader to this, you know, sort of, uh, you know, pointing straight back to the quintessential evil one, the, the cosmic brutalizer, which most of the time, you know, the evil one we would call Satan. So uh, most people through the centuries have read verses 12 to 17 as a, as a picture of, you know, the ultimate evil one or, or, or the devil, uh, the way he was the shining star, the star of the morning, the way he's fallen from heaven. You know, it's, you, you can't be talking about an earthly king anymore, you, you know, and so uh, that's why I, I too, I, I find this a really interesting passage now that operates on two levels because you can say it's about the king of Babylon, but only if you understand that he is some sort of embodiment uh, or uh, a, a physical, you know, a follower of the, 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 the evil one, the, the devil himself. Uh, and, and it's amazing. It's amazing because it helps us to recognize evil as we meet it in the world. The problem with evil... The, the, the problem is that it's, it has this ability to slip in and out of our lives primarily because we never seem to know how to recognize it. In the cartoons, uh, in, in, you know, in our imaginations, the devil is red with, you know, horns and a pitchfork. And, and, you know, we'd know him if we see him, you know, he would look like that or something out of a horror movie. But that's never the way he's depicted in scripture. You know, a shining star, the, you know, the son of the morning who, who's thrown down from his place. He's an angel of light, an angel of beauty. You know, the devil, Lucifer, as he's called. Um, his primary characteristic is narcissism, I guess, you know, to, to use that word, or just that self-enthrallment. He uh, loses the capacity to love anything other than himself because you become so in love with himself turned in toward himself. It's one of the classic definitions of evil. Evil, you know, is, uh, the, you know, the one that's turned in on the self in such a way where there's no capacity to love or consider others at all, because again, you're all turned in uh, upon yourself. Uh, those who are narcissistic or, you know, evil in this way, um, have very little motivation to do good, but a real intense motivation to look good, you know? And this is why he says, you know, I will make myself, you know, I will make myself like the most high, uh, make myself, you know, I mean, the psalmist says, it is he who hath made us, the Lord who has made us and not we ourselves. But, you know, evil, the devil says, I will make myself and I will be, you know, like the most high. Again, this self-enthrallment. Also this, uh, this, this, 
you know, some people say evil is live spelled backwards. You know, Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So it's this, um, this uh, opposition to life or the, the liveliness, the, the abundance that comes from life. Uh, and you see this all through this passage. You know, you have struck the people with endless blows of rage or unrelenting tyranny. You know, it's just this, you know, this desire to control and manipulate and steal and kill and ultimately destroy, ruin the lives, the life of, of anyone in its path. You know, the, the, this is evil. Anytime you see death, killing, uh, anytime you see, you know, the, the, uh, any sort of stealing the life or, or the pleasure of life, uh, and that sort of operates on several levels. You know, I think one of the ways in which the devil, you know, really destroys our lives is not by killing us, but making us to settle for this, this sort of dreariness. You know, you know what I mean? Boredom. And, and I see that in this, the, the, the generation of young people behind me right now. You know, they're just so dreary and bored already. You know, they're so overstimulated that they no longer can find pleasure in, in anything. They stare at their phones like zombies, you know and just wait for the next YouTube video to go viral. I mean, it's just so dreary. And, and you know, the devil has just, you know, an amazing job of ruining their lives because they don't know how to live, you know. Uh, this virtual life is really no life at all, but that's the devil. He promises something but never delivers. Uh, it, it's terrible. Uh, I think the third characteristic of evil that you find in Scripture and in this passage is just that, that blunted conscience. Uh, conscience. He'll, he'll never repent. The king of Babylon will never repent because basically he doesn't see that he sins. I mean, truly, every sin is forgivable and every sin is reparable except that sin of believing that you don't have any sin. And so since the king of Babylon, the devil himself, uh, is so wicked, uh, he'll never repent. And I, obviously the language of confession is the only way uh, that evil can be redeemed uh, you know, by the mercy and grace of, of the Lord. Um, I like verses 16 and 17. I wrap up here. That whole idea that when he's finally exposed, and I think this this points to the end of the age when we finally see the devil, the evil one. And uh, it's like verse 16 where everybody just stares and says, that's him. <laughs> you know, we picture this, you know, mighty, blah, this mighty enemy of God, you know, this incredible darkness. But uh, we're going to see this cockroach, you know, from eternity and, and think you're kidding me, right? That was... That was the one. That's the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble against verse 16. This is the one who destroyed the world and made it into a wasteland. Him, you know, that's it. That's the, that's the devil. That's, you know, um, and that's just, and that's just, I don't know, encouraging, frustrating. You know, I mean, he, he is such a liar. The father of lies, Jesus says, he has no power, but oh my goodness, he manages to take such control over us because he, Again, he, uh, he knows exactly what lie to whisper in our ear. Uh, so there you go. The king of Babylon in chapter 14 uh, sort of, uh, you know, somehow it disappears into this prophecy that reveals to us the, the devil, the evil one himself. And, and for that reason, I think it's a fascinating passage. Listen, tomorrow morning, let's pick it up. Let's read verses 15, 16, and 17. Sounds like a lot. It's not that much. Uh, so read chapter 15, verse 1, through chapter 17, verse 14, all right? We're going to pick up the pace. These oracles of the nations, honestly, get a little bit repetitive, and so rather than watch us you know, begin to spin our wheels, let's just move a little more quickly, okay? Chapter 15, 16, and 17 for tomorrow, uh, and I will see you, Lord, in the 10 o'clock for 10 with Tim. I love you guys. Have a good day.